Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Executive Pastor Dr. Tucker York. Our text tonight is Psalm 50. We're going to do just a brief three-part psalm series for the rest of the summer and before we begin a series in Colossians uh, this fall. Now, Psalm 50 may be best known for its reference to the cattle on a thousand hills. Psalm 50 was written by Asaph, a Levite, a worship leader appointed by King David. And this psalm is a summons to covenant renewal to the proper worship of God. And in this psalm, the Lord addresses two kinds of people within the covenant community. The first being the faithful, uh, those who still need correction in terms of the proper worship of God. But there's also a second group of people, the wicked, who by outward appearance would appear to be part of the community of God's people and yet privately have issues of rebellion and deceit against the Lord. And so as we consider this passage, may the Lord give each of us ears to hear his word. Psalm 50. The mighty one, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the field is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world in its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, and perform your vows to the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes? Or take my covenant on your lips, for you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother, and slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have, kept, I have been silent, and thought that I was one like yourself. But now... I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving 
as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. This is God's word. Father, this evening we would ask that the words of my mouth, that the meditations of each of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You get pulled over for speeding, you likely will be summoned to see a judge lest you agree to pay a fine without challenging the ruling. Most people dread court summons and will do almost anything to avoid having to appear before a judge or have one's case decided by a jury. I once served on a jury in Houston when I was 19 years old, just after my first year of college, home on summer break, and our jury happened to find the defendant guilty of transporting over a million dollars worth of cocaine. And that was a season when I had not a few speeding tickets and somehow managed to avoid the courts during that time. Psalm 50 is a court summons. To the mighty one, the God who is the Lord, he summons his people and followed by two speeches as the divine judge would call his people. To worship God, the righteous judge. To worship him with a right heart. And to worship him with repentance. The speeches of the Lord address the covenant community. And come offers a summons that is universal. Cast to the entire earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. All the peoples on the earth will be judged. And so we're ordered to hear the judgments of the Lord. But sadly, many, if not most people, turn a deaf ear to the summons of God that is evident in all of creation. In the echoes of God's law, which is written on the heart that Paul writes of in Romans chapter 1. Even the earth and and all non-human creatures are called as God's witnesses to observe and to testify to the unrighteous actions of God's own people. And God here speaks as though, out of, as though his tribunal is at Zion, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, which at that time was merely a, ter- a tabernacle. But here called the perfection of beauty, the city that God loves, the place the Lord chose to dwell for his Shekinah glory to appear behind the curtain that only the priests were privileged to witness and only under certain conditions. Those who insist that God has not spoken, if there is even any God at all, will be sadly mistaken. God is there, and he is not silent. God has spoken and has not stuttered or mumbled, Asaph reminds us, reminds his people on the the occasion that they first heard the Lord speak. You recall how Moses first heard God speak to him out of a burning bush, and then repeatedly as the Lord instructed him as he brought down terrible plagues upon the nation of Egypt. But then after the exodus, the Lord summoned his people out to Mount Sinai and gave very stern warnings not to touch the mountain, allowing only Moses to come up, touch it, lest they die. 
And in terrifying fashion, God spoke before his people with a dazzling display of his glory and power, with evidence of fire and smoke and lightning and gale forest winds. Now, the tabernacle may have been calm on the day that Asaph wrote this psalm, but here in this psalm he recalls the testimony of his ancestors who shook with fear at God who is a consuming fire, his power, his might expressed in a glorious tempest. Many years later, the author of Hebrews would reflect upon this same scene, offer a similar exhortation. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Verse 4 calls heaven and earth to account as God expresses judgment on his people. And here God focuses on his faithful ones, the ones who made covenant with him by sacrifice. You recall the scene where the Lord required Abraham to sacrifice animals, to cut them in halves in Genesis 15, and to lay out a a covenant-initiating ceremony. And in the ancient world, the, the sovereign ruler and the conquered vassal would pass between the pieces of the animals together in a kind of binding covenant to express that if either one violates the covenant, so what happened to those animals will happen to you in judgment. But on that occasion in Genesis 15, only the Lord passed between the pieces in the form of a smoking fire pot. Abraham was not permitted to pass between them to communicate the Lord's commitment to hold himself accountable to the covenant. And then later on in Genesis 22, when the Lord required Abraham to sacrifice his only son Isaac up on Mount Moriah, Abraham demonstrated his faith and his obedience to slay his own son, but the angel stayed his hand and assured Abraham that God himself would provide the sacrifice of atonement necessary. In both occasions, God communicated to his people that he and he alone would bear the penalty, that he would take upon himself the consequences of our covenant failure, just as he had taken the blow from Moses' staff when he struck the rock to make water flow out for the people to drink. In verse 6, the heavens declare the righteousness of of God who is judge. As our righteous judge, God cannot fail to uphold the righteous requirements of his holy law. He would later give his law to Moses and to the Levitical priesthood, institute a sacrificial system to provide the covering and the atonement of the people's sins. And yet God's people would fail over and over again and would be remain, the remaining need for the holy God to do what is right and remove the stains of sin on his people. And so how will God, the righteous judge, rule? And how will God's people find deliverance for their sin against a holy God? Those people in our culture who feel alone in our universe, who hope for 
extraterrestrial life or some other intelligence to visit us, to speak to us, need look no further than the Lord our God who has spoken to us in his word and visited us in the person of his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. God, the righteous and holy judge, is to be rightly feared. But he is also our gracious and loving Father, who provides you and I all of the righteousness we need to be acceptable in his sight. And where you and I have fallen short, our God covers the gaps. By the way of a mediator, our faithful high priest, who was tempted in every way and yet remained without sin. And as our good shepherd, he laid down his life for the sheep and reconciled you and I into a righteous relationship with the Lord our God. In verses 7 to 15, God offers his first speech to the faithful, compelling them to worship him with a right heart. He says to his people, hear, listen. As any father knows, children can be hard of hearing, even if nothing is wrong with their ears. The Lord testifies against his people. He reminds them, I am God, your God. He is the only eternal God, Elohim. And he is also Israel's personal God, the name, by the name given to Moses, Yahweh. Our creator and our redeemer has preserved a remnant whom he has saved for himself. And what is God's testimony? What is his case against his people? Well, he critiques the people's sacrifices, the, the manner and the disposition in which they sacrifice to him. But notice he first says, it's not for your sacrifices that I rebuke you, not as if they weren't being done or were being done wrongly. You know, the Lord commends the burnt offerings being performed at the tabernacle on a daily basis. And this was a time when David had rightly restored worship in Israel, and that he had set up the priesthood and the Levites, setting them straight after years of hypocrisy and neglect under King Saul. And the Davidic administration had reformed sacrificial worship and had grown. David had instituted choirs and instrumentalists and God-honoring music for, uh, for, to be expressed before their God. And David and, and his leaders would eventually pave the way for the construction of the temple. So this was at a high point of Israel's worship life under David's leadership. And yet, here's what the Lord has to say to the people in that day. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. He clarifies, for every beast of the field is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. So what is God saying to his people? Do not make sacrifices as though God needs them. God is not made the debtor by his people's sacrifices. Do not give to God like you might give to a beggar or a child. Rather, bring the best of your land and your produce or your flock as servants who are working gladly the property 
that their master already owns. Everything is his. And when you and I give, when you and I sacrifice, we are merely giving back a portion of what our Lord and our God already owns, that is already his, and expressing it back to him in devotion, in gratitude. So God tells his people both then and now that it is good and right to bring sacrifice to God, but must be done in a right disposition. Cain and Abel both brought sacrifices to God, but Abel's was better. Done by faith, bringing the firstborn of his flock a true sacrifice, whereas Cain appeared to merely go through the motions, just bringing any old offering from his fields. Saul and David both sacrificed to God, but Saul failed to obey. He failed to respect the rightful role of Samuel, whereas David humbled himself, repented, and relied upon the God-given means for proper worship. And the Lord here goes on to clarify that his people are not to sacrifice as the pagans do, to somehow satiate the unquitchable gods of the nations who engorge themselves upon the flesh of bulls and the blood of goats. With mirth, the Lord says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. God is not a contingent God. He is not dependent. He is not some mere local deity. Nor is God like a liege lord that has slaves working his land to provide for his unquenchable appetite. It seems that the people of this time may have been allowing worldly and pagan ideas to infiltrate their minds, to influence them. They had won many victories under David and his military leadership. And perhaps they falsely believed that it was their sacrifices that were feeding God and granting them success. So keep the blessings flowing. But God is not a quid pro quo. The Lord is not transactional. God does not scratch our backs when we scratch his back. He does not negotiate. He's not an impatient landlord looking to evict his people off his land. Notice the Lord says, the world and its fullness are mine. Here is another reminder from Scripture that God made the world with abundance, not scarcity. And where we find scarcity, it is the result of sin, injustice, neglect, and mismanagement. The world its land, its water, its resources are sufficient for all people to flourish. But where people do not flourish, it's not because of any lack from God, but rather human sin, corruption, greed, hoarding, and oppression. So what does the Lord require of us? In verses 14 and 15, the Lord compels us. He invites us to sacrifice to him sacrifices of thanksgiving and the proper performance of our vows. The Lord seeks our gratitude, not because he needs it, but because we need it. And gratitude is a sign of a healthy relationship. An attitude of thanksgiving demonstrates 
a right heart disposition, of the worshiper who recognizes his or her own neediness and dependent status upon the Lord, looking alone to God as our gracious giver and provider. We cannot earn our status with God. He redeemed you and I while we were still sinners. And so the pattern is prevalent throughout Scripture. We don't serve God so that he saves us. He saves us that we might serve him. The gods of the nations must be served and carried. The true God of Scripture serves and carries his people. And so it is good to obey the Lord and to take seriously one's vows and commitments, but not out of mere duty, not to seek profit for oneself, but out of the sheer joy of pleasing the one true God with a heart of deep gratitude for the forgiveness of sins and the promise of everlasting life. Giving to God merely to get something is the wrong motive. Giving and serving to somehow sacrifice in order to stay in God's good favor or to earn forgiveness or to keep his judgments away is a flawed and man-centered way of understanding our worship. We must not recognize that even our best works before God are mere filthy rags. Our costliest gifts are but a pittance. But give to God your gratitude. Humble adoration, recognizing the greatness of his power. The one who has amply provided for you every good and perfect gift. And in his final words to the faithful, he exhorts them and us, and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Humble dependence upon our great and mighty God, with grateful hearts, honors our God. You and I are good at getting ourselves into trouble, and God is good at getting us out of trouble. Every great story has in it the evidence of conflict and trouble and deliverance for some evil. The fireman who saves a child from a burning building doesn't seek payment from the child's family. He does it for the joy and the glory of using his abilities and his training to preserve life and to restore human happiness. In the current film, Sound of Freedom, based upon the true story of Homeland Security Officer Tim Ballard, who goes beyond his task of capturing pedophiles, but goes the extra mile to rescue children from the evils of human trafficking. And in a clever, after a clever sting operation, where he rescues a young boy and returns the boy to his father, the little boy turns to Tim and appeals to him to save his sister. At great risk to himself, and while partnering with foreign police officers and even a former drug cartel, Tim goes deep into the heart of dangerous Colombia, South America, on a glorious rescue mission that results in the rescue of over 100 children 
children that were helpless to save themselves. They cannot pay him back. But in a telling moment, the rescuers hear the sound of freedom, the joy and the laughter of children who have been delivered from great evil. And they are reminded that God's children are not for sale. The Christ-like actions of these deliverers, those who would put their lives on the line to deliver the oppressed, show and demonstrate to us the heart of God who does not seek slaves, does not seek tenants to work his fields, but as a gracious father delights in his children who will deeply know that they've been rescued from a terrible situation. In return, gratitude and a delight to know and to serve their living and redeemer God. Lastly, we consider verses 16 to 23. With God's sternest warnings to the wicked and a reminder that these are not pagan foreigners to the covenant. These are members of the visible covenant community, but a people who lack a heart for God, the nominal, the unbelieving, the rebellious, those who may have known the facts but lacked the faith, those among Israel who saw the signs and yet were skeptical, even yawned at them, those who had tasted but refused to swallow the goodness of the Lord, the reprobates, the heretics, and the apostates. These are professors, not possessors. And in verse 16, the Lord asks them, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant upon your lips? Why pretend when your hearts are one million miles away from me? The Lord calls out, those that hate discipline, who despise his words, who practice the taking up of thieves and adulterers, affirming their misdeeds rather than rebuking them with zeal for righteousness. The wicked have mouths that rain down evil. Deceit is found under their tongues. They sin with their speech. They speak against their brothers with slander. Like Cain, like Joseph's brothers, the wicked fail to demonstrate love for God, hating their own flesh and blood. As Jesus reminds us, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The Lord indicts the wicked in his covenant community for violating at least the seventh, eighth, and ninth commandments. And the wicked persist today. Those who are haters of the cross who could care less about trafficking or the welfare of vulnerable youth, who turn a blind eye to capitalistic greed, performing procedures on children for profit, allowing kidnappers to cross borders and avoid justice. In verse 21, God speaks to the fact that he appears silent. When his justice seems slow to come, the wicked grow bold and brazen, assuming that there is no God, that there, his justice will never reach them or call them to account. And yet God assures us that his justice will come, will strike like a thief in the night. In verse 22, 
Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart, and there be none to deliver. Those who forget God will be exposed, will be vulnerable and unprotected on the day of his wrath. They may forget God, but God will not forget their misdeeds of unrighteousness. People who live in denial of God, who act as though they are a law unto themselves, who assume they are accountable to no one, they who insist that there is no God are merely fooling themselves. They think that there is nothing beyond this life and no judgment to come. They indeed will be sorely mistaken. For all eternity, when confronted by a holy God for unbelief and punished for sinning against infinite righteousness. But notice that this warning to the wicked is an opportunity for redemption and deliverance. The final verse of our, of our psalm offers hope where the Lord says, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. So what is the Lord looking for? Repentance. Repentance in thanksgiving and gratitude. Demonstrating gratitude to God is what glorifies him. And ordering one's ways rightly in response to the grace that he has shown you. So this final word opens the door even for the wicked to whom God will show his ways of salvation to the one who repents, who turns away from wickedness to follow in his ways. Psalm 50 chimes a familiar theme we find in Scripture and is evident in Jesus' most famous parable, the prodigal son. When you read the prodigal son, what is immediately evident is the gracious kindness and loving kindness of the father towards his younger son, the prodigal, who has dishonored him, who has thrown out, has wasted his, all of his uh, inheritance in foolish and reckless living, and then has the audacity to return to his father to merely become his, one of his hired hands. But of course, the father won't have it. He doesn't want a slave. He wants his son his son who was dead, who is now alive, and slaughters the fattened calf and invites the whole town to come and celebrate. And so the real appeal of Luke 15 is to the older brother to compel him to come and join the party. As you remember the, the parable, the older brother is incensed at his little brother for squandering the inheritance, furious at his Father, for showing such mercy and kindness towards his disgraceful son. The older brother is like Jonah in his attitude towards the Ninevites upon whom God chose to show mercy. This older brother is entitled, ungrateful, even blinded by his own damnable good works, failing to see the beauty of his father's grace. In truth, the older brother is no better than the younger brother. Just as the Jews, Jesus' target in this parable, were no better than the Gentiles, 
both needing the salvation of God. And so, like the wicked, God makes an appeal. They might, people might change, have a change of heart and show gratitude, desire relationship with God and change their ways. Away from self-righteousness, smugness, turning a blind eye to evil, to one that demonstrates humility, joy, zealous for good works and service to God's name, to gladly make known and share the abundance of his amazing grace with other needy beggars who are lost and helpless apart from the God who saves. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for speaking to us in your word. We thank you for this stirring set of speeches to the righteous and to the wicked, calling each of us to repentance, self-examination. And I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and grace to grow in joyful gratitude for you, our only Redeemer, our Savior, and our friend. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.